So we're going to look at part two of our series on um, Moses. And last week we began looking at this amazing character in the Bible, uh, Moses. Uh, Moses is one of the most important figures in the Bible. Uh, hugely mentioned, uh, the most mentioned person in the New Testament from the Old Testament. Jesus himself, when replying to questions about what God thinks, said many times simply said, Moses says. Imagine if Jesus could say that about you, Luke Smith. Imagine if Jesus asked a difficult question about God and he said, well, Luke Smith said, and you think, who is this Luke Smith? Like, okay. <laughs> That's how big a dude Moses is. Uh, he was, as we heard last week, uh, born as a Hebrew slave, born into captivity, uh, and born at a time when his people were hated and every male child born was to be killed. He was saved by the providence of God and by the courage of his mother. And by the circumstances by which he was rescued, he grew up knowing two cultures. In fact, like us, he grew up knowing his faith culture, the culture of the Hebrews, and he also grew up knowing the best of his society's culture because he had been adopted into the family of Pharaoh. Uh, and then later in adult life, uh, a circumstance arose uh, involving a fight, he killed somebody, and he was forced to choose. He had to choose which of these cultures would he serve, which of these masters would he love, and which would he not. Who would he put first? Uh, and because of that, he had to uh, run away from his, the family that he'd been adopted into, the royal family. Uh, he runs into the desert, he hides there, and lives a nomadic life, probably for up to 40 years. A, a long time. In that time, he marries, he has children, and then we're going to pick up our story from Exodus chapter 3. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't write down the page number, but if someone can shout that out, and Freya's going to come and read that passage to us. So Exodus chapter 3. Page 40. If you want to read it, uh, I'll read it back. Now, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home 
of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. A lot of ones. And now the cry of Israelites have reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. <coughs> but Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am the sent me to you. Thanks, Fred. Uh, so this story contains the famous account, the, the burning bush uh, experience. And for Moses, this is his defining moment. It's hard to tell, but it possibly could have been his conversion experience. We don't have enough detail about his earlier life and to what degree his uh, people's faith was his culture or something he owned personally, but from, from, from whether he's far away or close to, this was a life-transforming life experience of God. Uh, to a degree, therefore, he already had some faith. Uh, God, when he speaks to him, says, I'm the God of your forefathers. I'm the God that you know about. He named Abraham, Isaac, etc. But for Moses, this is his defining Encounter. It's an encounter that transforms him from the hope dashed of his experience where he was living that dual identity. Um, this kind of um, nomadic experience that he's had where he's just been a shepherd um, in the desert for a long period of time, kind of, in a way, probably not doing a great deal, and that catapults him into, into the next chapter where he becomes the leader and deliverer of Israel, possibly up to a million people. This man is transformed in his faith convictions and his leadership from being probably a humble shepherd to a leader of a nation in difficult times through his living encounter with God. And I want to pick out from that reading that we've just heard four words that speak to both his self-discovery of God, but also each of them speak to his leadership transformation. Words that describe how he both discovered God and was transformed into God's leader. And the first word is this, disruption. Disruption. God brought disruption into Moses' life. Moses is a shepherd. He's in the desert. It's a, it's a quiet job. And God brings into his life uh, a burning bush, or a, a bush that's on fire but is, that is not consumed. It's not unlikely, it's not, it's not likely that was in itself a new experience. Uh, probably in the desert there would have been very dry bushes that may have caught a light or may have 
uh, caught a campfire uh, and, and been in, in flames. Uh, so it's probably not something he's never seen before. And if he's seen it before, he would have seen a bush that burst into flames and then it's consumed and then it's all gone. Uh, in a sense, there's, there's, there's no big deal about what he sees on first face value, except that something catches his interest. And the thing that catches his interest is this. The bush is aflame, but it's not consumed. Um, it's, it, uh, this is a bush where the bush is aflame, but the, the fuel of whatever it is, is being replenished. The source of whatever's making this um, burn is renewing itself. A fire normally burns up the thing that's on fire. He is looking at a fire that burns and burns and burns. And it's enough that he goes over. Twice in the passage he says, I will go over. He, goes, he, he leaves what he's doing, possibly a bit boring, but he leaves what he's doing and goes over to see what's happening in this bush. I'm trying to picture him getting home that night, you know, Hard day at the office, dear? Uh, yeah, well, I saw a bush, and it was burning. Oh, that's nice, dear, you know. Can you tidy up now and put the children to bed? It, it probably wasn't a life-changing encounter in that sense, except that he noticed something about it. The source of the fire of this bush was not what he'd normally seen. When I talk to people about their faith encounters, when people often tell their story of how they came to faith, it's often the case that people will cite a disruption that God brought into their life that was the trigger of something unfolding. Sometimes that thing is dramatic, um, but sometimes it, it's something that doesn't seem that significant, except that it was significant to the person themselves. It, it, it's as if um, God does something that has high personal meaning to a person that brings disruption into their life. We often think about discovering things, discovering anything, maybe like a straight line journey, like we might look at a map and put two pins and say we go from A to B and we follow a straight line path or it's like a, a graph where it's a curve and something gradually increases from one thing to another. But often journeys are not like that. Uh, Thomas Kaur, who wrote a, a book on science about 50 years ago, um, you might not have read the book, but the phrase he brought into common usage was the phrase paradigm shift. And he wrote about science and he said most people think science is like a gradual progression and you just think about something and slowly the ideas move and they increment forward. And he said some science is like that. But he said the best science, some of the, the, the most significant things that we have, have come because of a sudden, unexpected thought. In fact, if you're not following the path that an idea was going in, going in a completely different path, um, imagining, for example, what if... What if the planets don't go around the Earth. What if the Earth and the planets are going around the Sun? Uh, imagining, what if uh, this wasn't done in this way? What if it, this was done in a completely different way? And he said there's, there's this thing in science called a paradigm shift. When a small thing disrupts our mental map about 
what the world looks like, the grid of our experience, our defining shape of truth. Sometimes it takes just a small thing to provoke that to lead us dramatically into another form of discovery. Faith discovery is often like that. People, when they tell their story of coming to God, will often tell you of an event that sounds small or insignificant, but it was as if it was a tiny thing that launched them into discovering God. Uh, one of my heroes, Mark, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is a very famous preacher from the last century, um, tells his story about how he came to faith. He was a doctor, and he aspired to be a great doctor. And uh, one day he met the doctor who was his hero, the man he longed to be like. He was a doctor, and this other man was a doctor, but he longed to be like this man in an era probably when to be a doctor was a healer, to be, you know, you, you would be high, you know, highly valued, lifted up in the community. This man was his hero. And he happened to sit with him in a room on the day that this man's fiancée had unexpectedly died. And he's, he writes about the account and he said, this man just came into the room and said, may I sit with you? And sat and spent just two hours stirring at the fire. And he, and he writes, in a way that was entirely appropriate. And yet at the same time, he saw the shallowness of the hero that he'd made this man into be. He said, it was as if I saw all the vanity of human greatness melt away. And for Martin Lloyd-Jones, that, that was the beginning of his discovery of God. He thought, that had been my life's desire and, and, and pursuit. And yet I saw that for everything I thought that man had, actually, this, this loss that he'd suffered, he had far less than I thought. And that's what catapulted him into discovering God. Um, the poet W.H. Oden, um, his conversion experience was reading about the Nazi uh, war crimes and the horror that took place. And he thought, um, these horrible things are happening and, and I think it's wrong. And then he thought, but if, there's, if there is no God, then who is to say that one person's morality is superior to another? If there is no God, how can I say well, what I think should happen is right, and what you have done is wrong. And that simple idea that he had, just reading a newspaper, catapulted him into thinking, therefore there must be a God. Because I feel, I feel deep in my heart that what's happened is wrong. Therefore there must be a God who speaks about right and about wrong. So that's the first word that we see in the life of Moses in his experience of coming to God and transforming him into the leader that he became. God brought disruption into his life. And we're going to come back to that at the end of this talk. The second word is this, revelation. Disruption leads to an expansion of our understanding of who God is. And in a way, it was, it was vital that Moses went over to the bush he had to reveal something, that, he had to receive something that God had to say to him. Uh, and as he's, engaged, you know, as he's standing in front of this bush and he's noticing uh, this, this thing burns, but I can't perceive the source. 
it's as if it has a source that I'm unaware of. It's as if the source that gives its energy is different from anything I know. And then God speaks to him. And actually, God's message to him is, is very difficult. Did you notice the bit where he says, okay, in order to prove to the people that I have met with God, you just, you're going to need to tell me your name? And he says, that's fine. Just tell them I am sent you. You can imagine his heart sinking at that point, thinking, I was hoping for something a bit more profound than I am. But I am fits with the experience that he's having. Because he's having an experience where he's seeing something that is self-resourcing. And God is revealing himself and saying, uh, I am God because everything else you know depends on something else. I am the one that depends on nothing. He says, so God reveals himself and says, I am who I am. I depend on nothing. Jesus said a similar thing when he's talking to his disciples. He said, without me... You can do nothing. And when we come to God and when we hear about people who've come to faith and discovered God, often what we hear as well is their understanding of God enlarges, it doesn't narrow. If a person has an encounter with God, then their understanding, their awareness of who God is usually increases. Moses knew all about his faith heritage. He would have had it taught to him by his mother who was appointed to be his nursemaid. He would have known many of the the facts about what his faith was. But in this defining moment, his, his personal sense of this is the God who is dependent on no one else. This is the God who is the source and the root of all being. This is God who can say... I am. He doesn't have to say, I am from this, or this made me, or this was the beginning. This is God who can reveal himself to me simply by saying, I am. And the other thing I think that's incredibly important to notice in this passage is that God reveals himself with words. He has this amazing supernatural experience, but God adds words that define and explain what that experience is all about. Can you imagine what would have happened if there'd been no words? If Moses had found the burning bush, he'd stood and looked at it, maybe, you know, looked at it for hours and hours and hours, and then concluded, this is a supernatural bush. This is an amazing bush. Well, you know, what might he have done? He might have put it in a box and taken it home, you know, drawn a a faithful painting of the bush. He might have nipped off to his friends and says, come on, we're going to move house. We're going to live around this amazing, convenient bush. We'll never have to find Bear grills again to light a fire. Here's the bush that will always be aflame. Maybe he'll have gone and made little replica bushes and given them to all his friends. Come, you be a follower of the bush. Here is your bush. Maybe they'd have honored, you know, had a whole priesthood of fire makers who were set apart to be the only ones that may... Engage the flame and light the bush and we, you know, we pay them to do that job during the week or whatever it might be. Can you imagine where he might have gone if God had given no words to that experience? He could have gone in any one of a number of erroneous and unproductive paths if he had merely just had this um, interruption from God. 
Because God speaks words into it. God said, this is who I am. This is what I'm unhappy about. This is what bothers me. This is what I want you to do. This is where you're going to go. This is how I'm going to help you. God reveals a whole plan to him. And words are vital to that. I think that's why it's important we, we engage with the Bible. You know, we could all, we could all um, say, well, uh, I had this feeling, or I had this thought, or I noticed this thing. And there's lots of value in that. But just like Moses could have gone in a thousand directions with his magic bush encounter, so could we without defining faith words that give clarity and robustness to the experience. And the third word is this, holiness. So God brought disruption, God brought revelation, and then God brings holiness to Moses. God says to Moses as he approaches, you are now on holy ground. And he takes off his shoes as a symbol of recognising it. And the holiness of God is that part of God's nature that is dangerous to people like you and to me. God's holiness is the quality that he has that makes an encounter with God dangerous if you are not a perfect person and no one is. The Bible says it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And Moses' experience is probably one that communicated some of that to him. He has an experience that's both um, interest and comfort and warmth mixed with danger and fear and uh, disruption being brought into his life. You can imagine, if you've ever stood around a roaring fire, uh, initially it's enchanting and it's mesmerising and you can feel, you know, the hint of its warmth and you're drawn towards it. But if you, but you, you get that sense, you find a natural settle point, don't you? You find a point that you know, this is a point that's comfortable. If I go further towards this, the brightness will be too much. I won't be able to look at it. It will hurt my eyes. The warmth is uncomfortable. I'll be, I'll, I'll be, I'll be in discomfort. I may even be burned. If I, if I go right up to the fire, then I am in peril because I will, I'll get burned. I'll be consumed. I could be destroyed. So Moses moves from something of interest, something of revelation. He moves to something that brings a something of, of the element of the danger of discovering God. And his heart is exposed. He is exposed to the true picture of himself because he's in the presence of the living God. When I was at, um, in the sixth form, I was deluded into thinking that I was very clever. Uh, the delusion was of this form. I was the brightest guy in my maths group. I was doing double maths, not many were. In our double maths group, I was the best. So I thought, I'm really good. I, I even wrote to a professor at Cambridge and solved a famous problem. I think it was called the uh, Euler double prime problem, something like that. Boring, I know. Uh, on the back of a postcard. And I've still got somewhere his letter back to me telling me how amazing I am. Then I went to university 
and was revealed, and the true picture was revealed to me. And at university, I remember going in on the first day, and, and uh, I went to Warwick where they had a big intake of maths. They had 200 mathematicians, and I realised within the first week, I am pretty, pretty low down the bottom of this group. Three of my friends had photographic memories. So that, that's the kind of... I went from being the top of my class to I'm sitting next to people who don't even need to write notes because they can just go... Got it. Brilliant. Read it later. People that smart. People so clever they didn't have to revise. They could just lie on their bed and think a little bit about the lectures they went to and it was all fresh in their memory. The holiness of God is that thing that brings us into a truthful understanding of who we are. You know, I've learned in photographs, don't stand next to the good-looking guy, okay? This is my, you know, something I do. Whenever I'm in a group photo, not family photos, darling, but whenever I'm in a group photo, <laughs> I don't stand next to the good-looking guy. Because I reckon I'm about a seven, okay? So, now, if a seven... No? Okay, work with me. So, if a, if a seven stands next to a five, you are lifted up. You're the good-looking guy in the photo. People go, oh, who's he? Oh. If a seven, I don't do this, stands next to a nine, nobody knows who you are. Because all they notice is he's Prince Charming and there's the ugly sister. So that's my top tip to you. Photos reveal who we are. And the person you're standing in the presence of exposes who you are. If you were top of your group and then you go somewhere where everyone else there with a top, you, you're, suddenly who you understand you are is brought into truth. The prophet Isaiah had the same experience. We read in the beginning of the book of Isaiah, he writes simply that he walked into the temple of God and encountered God as present in his temple. And he, he writes words that describe it. The, the best that can be done to translate it is he, he says, literally, my body falls to pieces in the presence of God. He says he is undone in the presence of God. Holiness is that quality of God that exposes us with danger to the, to the reality of who we are with God's light shining on our lives. And I think if we ask people about God or if we write down the qualities of God, I reckon holiness is the one we might least likely list. Because we so often like to make God in our image. So if we said, who do, who do you think, what do you think God is like? We, we might say God's he's powerful, he's, um, uh, he's um, intelligent, he is, he's big, he's all powerful, he knows many things. I think probably the idea of holiness, this dangerous idea that God is that perfect being, that exposes the hearts of everyone else because they are literally compared side by side with who is and, and maybe ruined by the process. That's the, that's the quality of God we are least likely to list. And of course it's because we so often make God in our own image. We define the kind of God we want. We say silly things like, I don't think God would be like that. You know, as if, as if it was up to us, as if we got to define who God is. Moses may have had all sorts of understandings of who God is, but in that moment of holy encounter, his heart is revealed for who he truly is. 
And when I'm talking about, to people about coming to faith, I often, I often look for the spark that they've seen the holiness of God. That, that they've moved beyond information and understanding to that point of holy encounter that is they've seen themselves in light of who God is. And the fourth and last word is this, grace. And grace, thank God, follows quickly from holiness. Grace and mercy is the compassionate heart of God. Uh, later on, Moses says to God, I want to see you fully for who you are. And Moses says, I won't allow it, it would destroy you. And he barters with God and in the end God says, I'll, I'll, I'll allow you to glimpse a small part of me, but you couldn't possibly bear to look at me with nothing in between. It would literally destroy you. And as I was reading the passage um, this week, it struck me some, that there's something amazing about how God is revealing himself to Moses. And I don't know if you noticed it in the reading in verse 2. It begins by saying that it's the angel of the Lord that's in this burning bush. Thereafter, it says, God speaks. It was God that spoke through the burning bush. But it begins by saying, it was the angel of the Lord in this burning bush that called out to Moses. And that phrase, the angel of the Lord, it's slightly different from talking about angels and people who saw angels and accounts of it in the Bible. It seems to be a, sl a slightly more reserved phrase speaking about when God communicates to people. And I think that phrase is used to describe those occasions when God shows up but not to bring destruction to who person is. God is coming to have a life-giving encounter with somebody. But if he showed up, in a sense, in his full person, the person would be destroyed. And so this phrase, the angel of the Lord, uh, was in the bush. L later on, Moses says, if you're going to lead us into freedom, then your presence will have to go with us. And God bargains with him and says, I, I, can't, I can't send you my presence because you are a hard and rebellious people. He's saying, if I, if I brought the raw power of who I am in proximity with your brokenness, you would be consumed like wood is consumed in a fire. Instead, I will send my angel to guide you. And again, the angel is described as being in this pillar of fire that guided the people. In John chapter 8, Jesus says this, Before Abraham was, I am. So in John chapter 8, Jesus self-identifies himself with the God who revealed himself as I am. That would not have been lost on those who originally heard that. I am is one of the, the, the words that God used to describe who he is. It's, it's, God's, it's God's name for himself. And Jesus says this, before Abraham ever was, I am. Jesus identifies himself to those people that heard him as being the one who was revealed to Jesus. Who was it speaking to Moses from the burning bush? I think it was Jesus. It was Jesus who later, thousands of years later, would say, before any of this, I am. Jesus who identifies himself as the I am. 
The same Jesus who came to live amongst broken and imperfect people, to be in the closest proximity to them without bringing the destruction of the holiness of God and yet to bring the life-giving redemption of who God is. Perhaps it was Jesus in some pre-incarnate form, Jesus, whoever was, speaking to Moses through that burning bush. And it adds a clarity to our understanding of what it means to follow God. Because in Jesus we see both the holiness, the, the horror of the cross, the holiness that that represents, the, the dangerousness of the encounter with God, the, the severity of imperfection being set alongside perfection. We see that expressed in the, in the brutal horror of the cross. And yet we also see mercy and compassion in the life of Jesus who died that others might live.